This is Tell Me What To Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm your host, Nick Wasiliev, and today I'm excited to bring you the first of three special podcasts this week. First up today, Ben Hunter sits down with Jane Caro, author of The Mother, which has been selected as our book of the month for March 2022. Head to our website right now for a special offer on this title. You can also check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews, as well as links to all books mentioned. Lastly, this interview contains references to abuse, sexual assault, and violence against women. Listener discretion is advised. If you or anyone you know is suffering from the issues raised in this podcast, there is help available. You can reach out to White Ribbon Australia at 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. Now, over to Ben's interview with Jane Caro on The Mother, our pick for the book of the month. March 2022. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and on the podcast with me today is Jane Carrick. She is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, a social commentator, a broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, and author. And now she's adding to that list, she's a federal Senate candidate. (laughs) <laughs> and a frustrated wordle solver. Yeah. Uh, her first novel for adults is out now, and it is called The Mother. We love it so much at Booktopia. We've made it our book of the month for March. I'll tell you more about that soon. Um, uh, but I'm also going to give a trigger warning at the very tippy top of this. Um, this book uh, is a f- frank discussion of domestic violence and murder. Uh, if you or someone you love has... Uh, is going through anything of that variety, uh, I recommend a hotline, uh, 1-800-RESPECT. It is excellent and it is staffed 24 hours a day. That is 1-800-RESPECT or 1-800-737-732. Jane Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me and thank you for giving that trigger warning and, um, you know, place that people can go if they need help. Very important. Um, Jane, this novel reflects on one of the most heartbreaking failings of our modern society, but it also asks one of the oldest ethical questions of time immemorial, would you take a life to save a life? Mm. So why don't you just start by telling us about the novel in your own words? Sure. Well, basically the novel is about a woman who's lived a very privileged life. She's, you know, um, comfortable financially, good marriage, two nice daughters. You know, yeah, she's got a few niggles here and there. Her relationship with the youngest daughter isn't quite the way she'd like it to be good. But unfortunately, life doesn't stay pretty good. Um, and she goes on a roller coaster ride, really, um, because of the marital choices that her younger, youngest daughter makes. Um, at first, Miriam, the mother of the title, thinks that the man who's come into Ali's life like a kind of whirlwind, a real whirlwind romance, is the answer to a mother's dreams. Forget about a maiden's dreams because um, this difficult daughter of hers has finally found someone who can take responsibility for her, love her, and Miriam's kind of off the hook. And there's a lot of relief in that, really. Um, And then slowly, as time goes on, Miriam starts to realise that this relationship she had such high hopes for 
and that obviously her daughter had high hopes for is not what it seems. And it becomes more and more extreme uh, to the point where Miriam and Ali eventually, um, after quite a few years, realise that Ali and her children, her two small children, Isla and Teddy's lives are in, at serious risk. And, I mean, given the headlines that we've all seen over the last goodness knows how long, it must be hard for anyone watching someone they love in a uh, violent or coercively controlled relationship without fearing that it could go to extreme lengths. And this book looks at what happens when you become convinced that it is, what a loving parent is prepared to do in those situations, and if they do take extreme action, what the result of that would be, how that might play out. And basically there's a dilemma at the heart of the novel and, Ben, you summed it up perfectly. Is it right to take a life to save a life? And the novel doesn't, I think, and I don't have an answer to that. And I think part of our problem with the messy world of relationships is there are no hard and fast answers. There is no clear right and clear wrong. And in this book, that is also true. Miriam says all the way through, I have done the wrong thing, a terribly wrong thing, but I did it for the right reasons. Um, and I think we need to look at that. And the book doesn't pretend to have the answers. I guess the book is really trying to make us all face the question. That certainly does that. Uh, it's, a, it's a book I read, Jane, at breakneck speed. Um, and, and usually I'd like to save a book. It, it, this wasn't a matter of me not liking the prose and wanting to rush through it, but the, the content is heavy and it is a book that I just I had to know what happens so I just I couldn't I couldn't stop reading this thing once I was in it without feeling just ill just like total unease it's mm. uh, a thriller true and true in that sense and it's very effective I want to know Jane about the creative process of putting it together did it um, come in a creative burst or was it uh, a project that you really had to stew on it was more of a creative burst, I suppose. I, I had the idea it arrived whole in my head. And um, I it, sometimes when you get, particularly I think when you're writing fiction, when you get those ideas, there's an insistence that comes with them. The idea keeps saying to you, you have to write this, you have to write this. I was very daunted by it because I thought, do I want to go to those dark places? You know, I'm not, yes, I know a bit about domestic violence. I've certainly um, campaigned about it and that kind of thing, but I'm not an expert. I'm not Jess Hill, you know. Um, do I really want to go there? But I asked around to a few people who work in the sector, um, Annabelle, Daniel in particular, and they were very encouraging and said we really need fiction because it will reach a different audience. Um Nonfiction about this issue um, is really important. We need that. It's vital, but it reaches a certain kind of reader. We need this to get out and be read by more people. And in a way, writing an, um, a thriller, and it had to be a thriller because of the nature of the idea, is a way of drawing in an audience that comes for the thrills, which they will get, but stays for the social impact and the 
dilemma at the heart of the book. And therefore, what I really think that fiction does particularly well, better in a way than nonfiction, and I write both, of course, and I value both equally, um, but they do different jobs, is I think fiction takes us into compassion because if we're really enjoying a book, we're actually travelling imaginatively with the characters. So we're identifying with them, we're caring about them, we're worrying about what happens to them. We're not in judgment. We're not looking at them from afar and judging them. We may approve or disapprove their actions, but we're not judging them. We're in there with them. And hopefully um, the author, and in this case that's me, um, has uh, convinced you of the, the fact that the motives behind even an unimaginable action are understandable. Even if the result may be shocking, you sort of understand how they got there. And I think that's the essence of compassion. To come out of judgment and into compassion enables us to start to understand a problem in a more human way. I mean, so many people, when they hear about domestic violence, things like, why didn't she just leave? You know, oh, well, she, she shouldn't have taken stopped him seeing the kids. You know, there's so many judgments that are passed. And people tend to think that women who get into these relationships have some sort of deficit. There's something wrong with them. You know, got attracted to the wrong man. I want to take all those myths and break them up into little pieces because I don't think they're right. And uh, I hope that's what the book does. And so, yeah, it's it, it, it came in a creative burst. I had a lot of help from my editor at Alan and Unwin, Ali Laveau, who was just fantastic. Um, but I wrote it the way it insisted that I write it. <laughs> so the fact that it does hold people's, and I've heard that response you gave is one I've had a lot, which is very gratifying, of course, um, is, is more because I was gripped, I think, than that I designed to grip, desired to grip you. It was more that I was gripped <laughs> as I was writing it. Yeah, uh, you you touch on uh, quite succinctly that the kind of the value of framing things in fiction versus framing them in nonfiction. It's it's a uh, storytelling is a hard and fast route to compassion. That must mean this is potentially an even heavier emotional lift for you. Uh, to try and put this onto the page. You write some very heavy content in this book, and I'm not going to spoil it, um, but uh, it, uh, it's a nail-biter. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, some, some, some things uh, you read are, are heinous, and it, it, it's, a, it's a logical extreme. I think you need to set up with the reader to test the, the ethical question properly. You know, it has to go to the extreme. It but has to go to the extreme. How did, how did you sleep <laughs> writing that? Uh, it was, that was actually really the worst time. I, I had so many conflicting emotions. Um, I was terrified that I might have jumped the shark, but I knew I had to really go into the darkest of dark places. That was necessary. Um, so I reached out at that time for um, support and like one of the things I did was an old school friend of mine, we were in primary school together, um, is now one of Australia's top family court lawyers. And I remember sending him an email going, oh, for God's sake, you know, Duncan, have I done that? Am I completely off the rails here? Is this just all, you know, rubbish, blah, blah, blah. 
told him some of the dark things and he came back to me and said, oh, Jane, you've just summarised half the files on my desk. Now, that's gratifying for an author who's struggling with is this working, but it was devastating from the point of view of, oh, my God, what kind of world do we have where there are so many toxic relationships where terrible things happen? And I think that's the thing perhaps we're starting to find out is that we call some things extreme that actually should be extreme but may not be. They may be much more common, I'm not going to say normal, but common than we've allowed ourselves to be aware of. And right up front, um, Annabelle Daniel gave me a judgment, the judges summing up in the uh, terrible case where Simon Gattani was accused and convicted of um, throwing his then-girlfriend over the balcony of a high-rise building in Sydney and said this is a brilliant uh, summation of coercive control and how it works. And so right from the start I was taken to how dark this can get in real life, forget about in a novel, in real life. And so I slept, I suppose, because I felt a sense of we need to understand how real this is um, and how many people, most of them women and children, literally live in terror. And I don't think this is new. That's the other thing. I think that this has been the reality for an awful lot of people for probably as long as there have been humans in relationships. And it feels now so urgent for us to stop pretending that it doesn't happen and only noticing when it reaches the absolute undeniable stage, but actually have some understanding of how people get there. To do that, you, you, I, I admire that you've, you've framed it not in, you haven't framed this in a dire circumstance. This is, this is, this is happening to a middle-class, well-to-do group of people. Yeah. Um, and at the at the center of your story is Miriam, who's the most excellent, relatable mum. As you say, she's not perfect, but she's doing well. She's a real estate agent in the northern suburbs of Sydney, and um, she's got two great daughters and a very human husband. And she has a very mature and nuanced relationship with him. Like I, I love the character of Miriam as as much as I could love a real estate agent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I feel like that's, I put a bit that's of a in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's got to be a conscious choice to, to, to make sure this is a protagonist that Rees can very quickly get on side with, that can be related to and, and respected, and then to walk her into that horror show over the years and have it get progressively worse and worse. Yeah. But it, I felt strongly it had to be like that because we had to actually think to ourselves, because when I had the idea, it came out of this thought. It was in response to one of those horrific um, murder-suicides where I was just so devastated reading about it and seeing photographs and everything. And I remember thinking, and I've got two daughters and grandchildren, and I remember thinking, lovely son-in-laws, I have to say quickly, um, I remember thinking, what if that was one of my girls in that situation? what would I do? How would I feel? What would I do? And then I thought, well, I know what I'd want to do. And that got me thinking about how all of us can relate from that perspective. 
of wanting to protect the people we love most in the world from real harm. And that made me start to think about this idea of getting us all to empathise with this this terrible situation. And I'm I think we have a we have a we have a bit of a flaw. I think across our society at the moment about the way we think about trauma and crisis. We, in a way, we protect ourselves from empathy about people who find themselves in trauma and crisis because if we empathise, we have to accept that life is chancy and terrible things can happen to anyone. If, however, we stay in judgment and we keep out of empathy, we can say, oh, well, that would never happen to me because I would never do X, Y, Z. I would never marry a man like that. I would leave if anyone did anything like that. We can sort of distance ourselves from the situation. And the problem with doing that, whilst it might protect us, our own feeling of safety, it becomes a judgment on the people who were unlucky enough to find themselves in such an unsafe place. And that is not helpful. That is, in fact, quite cruel. And the fact that you're safe and you are cruel to maintain that sense of safety is what I want to challenge to some extent. I want to say to people, it could be you, it could be anyone, it could be the most ordinary, nice, respectable family down the road. And we keep finding that. I mean, some research came out only a week or so ago. If it had come out, you know, while I was writing the book, I would have gone, yee! Because it basically said that 33%, they analysed all the domestic homicides and they said that 33% of the men who go on to kill their partners and sometimes their children have never shown any sign of violence. They function very well in the world. People like them. No one has a clue that behind closed doors they're behaving in this bizarre way. And I think that's what I wanted to tap into, that it's not a monster and it's not some poor pathetic you know, girl who can't defend herself, who lives in a housing commission somewhere. It's not that at all. It's that and much more and could be any of us. And so, yes, we. I knew we had to identify and like our, um, the mother, um, though I didn't want her to be, you know, treacly or perfect. She had to be a real person. Um, but, yes, that was very important to me. On the other side of that question, what if it was your daughter? Uh, there's the question, what if it was your son? And uh, you know, the character of Miriam, you know, where we read from her perspective, but she, you know, she goes to the wedding. She sits across from uh, the parents of the the groom. Uh, and you need to, you needed to bring those characters to life as well and, and ask yourself the question of, you know, how, how would they react yeah. to this scenario? How did, how did you go about writing that? Well, I, I just imagined, um, I mean, I've got a grandson. I don't have a son, but I have a grandson. And one of the things that has always worried me about the kind of misogyny, misogyny in society and the acceptance of casual misogyny and sexism is that not only does it groom our daughters to be vulnerable as victims, but it grooms, and this is almost worse to me, it grooms our sons to be tempted to misuse their power and be predators, which we see far too often um, among certain types of school kids, you know, older people, you know, we just see it far too often, this idea that to be a man is to be a predator. Just look at most children's clothing. All the girls, if they've got 
animals on them. It's bunny rabbits, kittens and butterflies. If it's the on the boys, it's wolves, sharks, um, you know, gorillas, uh, foxes. It's predators. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if we can have a clearer message. Mm. Um, the way we talk about romance, the chase, um, swept her off her feet. You know, it's all about conquest. It's all about ownership and it's all about grabbing and taking uh, the woman that you want. So I thought about all of that. I thought about a conventional family who didn't think terribly deeply about those things. Probably if they thought about them at all, they thought, oh, yeah, that's normal, that's natural, that's the way it should be. I didn't want to demonise them as terrible people who did terrible things. I hint that there may have been some quirks in the upbringing of Nick, but I didn't want to go into uh, a backstory on Nick because Miriam and Alison don't know about it and also I didn't want to sort of say, oh, well, we can't blame the men because this is what happened to them, you know. Uh, although I have empathy for Nick, you know, I do actually think we don't want a society that encourages our sons to grow up to be or to be able to justify letting letting the darker side of themselves unleashed. We all have dark sides to ourselves. Every novelist worth his salt knows that. But the point of civilization and good upbringings and those, the law is to keep that side under control, not allowed out to wreak havoc. But sometimes in the way that we teach our sons what it is to be a man, which is to basically reject all vulnerability, all softness, or kindness, or weakness, or nurturing, we actually predispose them, not intentionally, we don't mean to do this, to becoming a kind of possible, let that dark side out and feel entitled to do so as proof of masculinity. But I had tremendous empathy all the way through, as does Miriam for Sally, Nick's mother, and, in fact, she is most ashamed and guilty when she thinks of the effect what she has done has had on Sally. But the therapist, of course, that Miriam sees does actually kind of open the frame on that a bit, not just for Miriam, but also I hope for the reader that um, had what Miriam so feared come to pass, Sally would have been even worse off. Yes. Oh my goodness! What a, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's really tragic just to just to reflect on. Um, and yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. Uh, one other thing I I wanted to get at. Um, yes, you take the reader to the darkest possible place um, and express some heinous stuff, but domestic violence and coercive relationships as as I've witnessed them, are uh, so much more than that. Uh, you write very carefully the insidiousness of the relationship and the control and how one partner can uh, manipulate and isolate so effectively and how that happens over time and how they manage to do it without people realizing even well-educated well-balanced people um, and that extends to the friends and family obviously and Miriam herself is undermined and 
uh, isolated and, and in times humiliated. How, how, is, how is that process of putting, putting those aspects onto the page? Was, was, that, was that even, in a sense, more of a challenge? Well, yeah, it was. Um, to get the pacing right, to get the drip, drip, drip of mm. the confusing messages that Miriam's getting because Nick occasionally often does things that seem to be very caring about his wife and full of concern about her and, you know, worried because, of course, he he begins to get Miriam to believe that Ali uh, has postnatal depression or possibly even worse, postnatal psychosis, and that therefore everything he does is out of concern for her and love for her and the desire to um, help her get better. And uh, Miriam, having had her own struggles with Ali, um, is well-placed to believe all this and Ali's own actions, which we, towards the end of the novel, start to understand why she does what she does, seem to confirm what Nick is saying about his wife. Um, And so, I, I mean, I have empathy for everyone caught up with an arch manipulator because most of us are not arch manipulators. So we don't go through life expecting that people are telling us the absolute opposite of what is true. I mean, perhaps we could um, explain the Trump phenomenon a bit like that, you know, that he just says the opposite of what's going on and people believe it because, A, they want to, and, B, they're not used to thinking that this person is telling, can just stand, that someone can just stand up there and say, no, the world is not as you see it, it is like this, and deny reality. But, of course, that is how you gaslight someone, you deny their reality. So, yes, it was it was hard to do. It was also, to be honest with you, and this sounds terrible, but you have to enjoy writing a book to finish it, it was, uh, it was exciting and interesting to have to do it from a technical writerly perspective and feeling like you've um, been convincing. And all I kept thinking to myself is how easily I could be made to think, Oh, maybe maybe the way I see things isn't the way they are. Maybe I am wrong about that. You know, it's a very easy thing to do to people. Um, we've watched an entire globe have that kind of undermining happen over climate change. Oh, it's not settled. Oh, there was these scientists who think differently. You know, in a way, we've been gaslighted about that for a decade or more, and so we're very used to it. But the more we understand how it works, the less vulnerable all of us will be. I hope. Mm, well said, Jane. You you um you dedicate this novel to your mother, Kate. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Well, my mother's amazing. She, uh, I'm very lucky. Both my parents are still alive and hale and hearty. They're both well. My mother's ninety now. My father turns ninety in April, and my mother's a lifelong feminist, um, a very intelligent, um, but until she was in her 40s, undereducated, didn't get the kind of opportunities um, to go to university and that kind of thing because she was a girl. That was the only reason. And, um, you know, if my mother had been born when I was born, she would have been a professor of history, no question about it, or a professor of politics. I mean, she's got a brilliant academic mind. She's an awesome researcher and she has achieved a great deal. She, in fact, was a relationships counsellor as a career and did go to university late in life. Um, But, you know, uh, she brought up four children. She didn't love being a mother. 
we were very clear on the fact that she did not love being a mother and she certainly loathed being a housewife, but she loved us. And um, she certainly uh, gave her daughters the sorts of messages I think that made a big difference to us, which was um, don't do what I did. Don't become a secretary and then get married young and have lots of children. Do not do that. That is not a good way to live your life. And the funny thing is she and my dad adore each other and have been married for must be getting close to 70 years, I suppose. Well, it must be 67 years they've been married now. Um, they're very close and he's always, I mean, he thinks she's the smartest person he's ever met. She's probably, he's probably right. Um, and so I wanted to dedicate the book to her because I don't think I would have been able to do any of the things that I've done without her honesty about her own life because a lot of people pretend they're enjoying lives that they're not, particularly to their children. I think telling the truth is better. And Janice, speaking of everything you, you do, yes. <laughs> you're taking a stand for election uh, in 2022, federal election. You're going to stand for the Reason Party for the Senate. Mm. Uh, about that, uh, I mean, a, a lot of people probably um, aren't unaware of the Reason Party yet and and, um, and what they do, what their ideological platform is. So. Um, enlighten us. Okay, so A Breeze in Australia is a fairly new party, but it is formed out of um, uh, coming together of uh, Fiona Patton's sex party. Fiona Patton's a fairly well-known political figure in Australia, particularly in Victoria, where she's been in the upper house there for about seven years. She's very effective. She's gotten some really wonderful things through. Most recently in the last few weeks, um, she was very instrumental in helping getting sex work decriminalised in Victoria. But it, she's joined forces with the Vol Voluntary Euthanasia Party, um, which has also been really effective at getting um, um, voluntary assisted dying laws in Victoria and in many other states. And it looks like they might be about to pass in New South Wales as well, which would be really wonderful. Um, so these are proven effective at getting policy actually done um, operators and they came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in standing for them in the Senate and I looked at their policies and I like you know I, I agreed with just about everything they said and I also really liked their emphasis on evidence-based policy that listens to the experts and makes decisions on the basis of what will minimize harm diminish suffering and enhance people's lives without worrying about ideological considerations or religious belief. Or What's going to actually fix this and make it better? What's going to help the people who are suffering from whatever it is we're looking at? What's going to make the world better if we do X or Y? And um, I really like that approach. I don't know, I've got a problem. Let's look for the best answer and implement that one. Uh, it's often what we do outside of politics but it's far too rare in politics. And hence the name Reason Australia. Um, let's actually use what we've got up here as much as we use our heart and our gut. We've gone a little bit too far into the heart and the gut and forgotten to turn on our brain. And I'm not saying you don't use your heart and your gut. Of course, I'm a novelist. But like a good novel, they need to be integrated. Your brain needs to be working with your heart and your gut for a book to be a good book. And 
your brain needs to be working with your heart and your gut for a policy to be a good policy. Um, and we're not seeing nearly enough of that. So I was very attracted and also looking at Australia, where it is today, the kind of leadership we have at the moment, it just doesn't feel like we're actually looking at the future at all and we're certainly not looking at tackling the really wicked problems that we're facing and it's getting urgent. I mean, the Queensland, we're, we're sitting here now where a once-in-a-hundred-year flood has just happened again within a few years. You know, we're starting to say, oh, maybe the scientists were right. Yes, what a surprise. <laughs> of course they're right. You know, they've created the rest of the world that we live in. When we got a pandemic, who found the, the, the solution to it within a miraculously short time? Okay, not a perfect solution, but we're a hell of a lot better off with the vaccines than we were without them. Scientists. But what have we done? to what, benefit profits and the fossil fuel lobby and people who had invested in digging stuff out of the ground and don't want to be a stranded asset? We under, fundamentally undermined trust in science and the scientific method and evidence. And what have we ended up with? QAnon and the anti-vaxxers and the, you know, freedom protests and Donald Trump. I mean, it's a disaster. And I know I'm standing for a small party, I'm just one person, you know, I'm going to give it a really good shot, but getting into the New South Wales Senate is, you know, it is tough. You need a lot of votes. But we've all got to do something. If we're going to stay in a sane and reasonable world where people actually do things that, are, that make a good difference, we've all got to stand up and do what we can. And it seemed to me that I had to practice what I preached. So that's what I'm doing. Well, power to you. It's uh, it's going to be a, a big year for you, Jane. Sure is. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's if you're a progressive, that is a very robust and good policy platform from my perspective as just one voter. So, hey, oh, I'm, I'm totally progressive. It's all uh, you know. I am not. Um, I'm not interested in neoliberalism on any level. I, in fact, it astonishes me that we keep in electing governments that don't believe in government. That would seem to me to be something that would exclude them from consideration. We need leadership. We need governments. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, um, if if Labor win the federal election in the lower house, I think um, the people we have in the upper house, you know, if, if Labor win, it will be by um, uh, a not and probably not a massive margin. And I think the upper house will will really matter. And I think uh, who we have in the upper house will really matter. So um, that's my thing to too. Find. <laughs> yes. Um, we're out of time, but um, I want to, yeah, thank you again for uh, writing this incredible novel, uh, for everything you do, and for taking a little bit of time out of a, what's going to be a very, very busy schedule for you uh, to talk to us. It's my pleasure. I love Booktopia. You're an awesome organisation um, and you're Australian. <laughs> Jane, thank you. Uh, and thank you for signing books for us and, and everything that you do. Um, the Mother is published by Alan and Omen. It is out now and it is our March book of the month. That means for the month of March, there is a very special price on it for a limited time. So check it out, booktopia.com.au. Thanks to Jane Caro. You can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. 
Stay tuned for our next episode tomorrow in our traditional Wednesday slot, where we sit down with Sarah Runke, director of the Brisbane Writers' Festival, to discuss the upcoming 2022 iteration of the festival. Then join us on Friday for a conversation with Erin Barnett, author of Endo Unfiltered, in conjunction with launch of Endo Awareness Month. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.